Thank you, O oh God, that we can praise you because of the accomplished work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And so we're thankful that we get to gather in his name. Spirit of God, we thank you that you're with us. As we take a look at the word right now, your word, would you guide us into its understanding? So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most daunting questions you will ever ask yourself is why are you here? Why do you exist? For what purpose are you alive? And then collectively, as humanity, to ask ourselves, why are we here? Is there any purpose for which we are alive? Why do we exist? Why are we around? And a couple of weeks ago, when I talked about the improbability of the possibility of the universe existence without a prime mover, and what it means that I don't think the universe can exist without God, how the universe can't be here without him, as we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, if evolution, in its sense, without a prime mover is true, and the universe was able to self-create, then there is no purpose. There's absolutely no purpose for humanity. We don't exist for any reason whatsoever. We simply do exist. But not for any reason. We simply are here. That's it. Now, there may be then momentary times of purpose where you feel like you have a purpose in love or a purpose or meaning in a job, or there are, there are moments at times that they're all fleeting. There's no significance in terms of long-lastingness. But that's very different than the account we have in Scripture. As we began in Genesis 1 last week, we began to look through the account, and in Genesis 1, God talks about how he created human beings, men and women, in his image. And that we're made in God's image emotionally, relationally, intellectually, and spiritually. Emotionally, relationally, intellectually, and spiritually. That we are made in the image and likeness of God. And that God, in creating us as creator, has granted us a purpose. And so chapter 1 of the book of Genesis offers the seven-day creation account of what God has done. Chapter 2 takes a microscope and takes a look at humanity. And what has God done in creating humanity? He unpacks a bit of how he has created us as human beings. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 2, beginning at verse 4, we're going to walk through these verses stutter step as I make comments on them on the way through and some thoughts at the end. Genesis 1, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. As I said, Chapter 1 also offers a summary statement. The summary statement is that God created the heavens and the earth. So you have a summary statement in chapter 1, verse 1. And now here, as this subsection begins, you have another summary statement in chapter 2, verse 4, that this is the account of God creating the heavens and the earth. Now note, there is a difference here. In all of chapter 1, God's name Elohim is used. God, 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 all through chapter 1. Note right here in, in verse 4 of chapter 2, and you'll find this throughout the entire chapter, it's the Lord God. It's Yahweh, it's Jehovah, this is the Lord, Yahweh Elohim. This is the Lord God. And possibly in chapter 2 that's there because God is establishing his lordship even over humanity. Humanity who is at the pinnacle or the top of God's created order, humanity who is who is who is the, the, the top piece of what God has done, God says, I want you to know that even though you are the pinnacle 
of my created order above you is still me. I am the Lord God. I am Jehovah Elohim. And so as we walk through this chapter, you'll note a few things. You'll note the creation of man to begin with. And God imparts life to man by his very breath. You know that God actually plants the garden in providing humanity with bounty. God's the one who does it. You'll note that there's a survey of the garden that we'll get to briefly. God kind of offers this little survey of the garden that's there. God declares the very first commandment. God says or grants the first commandment to Adam and then to Eve. And that God's completion of creation is with woman. She is the, 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 the completion of the created order. So verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So note here, there's been no shrub, or you could translate it sprig. Uh, the idea here is a sprig is kind of that small piece of, of, of a herb, of, of an herb. Um, no, no, no sprig, no shrub, no plant had yet sprung up. They, they'd not yet been cultivated. That's not to say God hadn't created trees and plants and animals. It, it had happened. But in terms of the cultivation, of the, none of that had occurred. It says God had not sent the rain. It's possible here, we'll get to this later in the book, that rain does not occur until the days of Noah. It says here that the water, or the earth was watered by streams that came up from the earth, a mist, if you will, that came and watered the whole surface of the ground. And note this, there was no one to work the ground. That's one of the reasons there hadn't been any cultivation yet. No one was there to do it. No one was there to work the ground. No one was there to grant that type of work. Note then that God forms humanity. He makes humanity from the dust of the ground. So we are intricately and inseparably tied to the earth, just like the animal. As God created vegetation from the earth and God created animals from the earth, God takes the dust of the ground to form humanity. But then, in offering us what is similar, he also offers what is distinct. He says he breathes his life into him into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Two ways God offers the distinction of humanity. The first is in the first chapter, where God says that men and women distinctly are made in the image of God. We are image bearers. We bear God's image. And secondly, here in the second chapter, where God says, and I want you to note that I have breathed my life into you. We are alive because the breath of God is in us. No one... Nothing else on the planet, not no one else, nothing else on the planet is made that distinctly. Nothing in the animal kingdom, nothing in the vegetation kingdom, nothing. Only humans are granted the image of God and the breath of God. Only human beings. And they're granted by God specifically for us to show how distinct we are in the created order. We are the pinnacle of his created order, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
So God planted a garden. In there, he put the man. He put the man to cultivate it. He put the man there to look after it. And you see that we're inseparably and intricately connected to the earth. That's why I believe that Christians should be the most ecologically friendly people, the most environmentally friendly people on the planet. No one should care for God's planet more than us. It's one of the purposes, God says, for which he called us to. He put man in the garden to care for it, to tend it, to cultivate it. That hasn't changed. God has granted us this planet to care for and to cultivate it, to come alongside of it, as you will. Though we are the pinnacle of God's created order, we are responsible for it. Many of you will know that, that, that over the last little while, we received a couple of awards from organizations for this building. This building is one of the most environmentally friendly buildings built in North America. Um, it's a passive house build, and in being a passive house build, it means that, means that it's, it's well uh, insulated. It means that at every juncture uh, or transition in materials, that it's well sealed. And so again, recently, there's another one that's come up, and, and so people will call me and talk to me about the building, this has happened now on a couple of occasions, and as these non-believers call me to talk to me about the building, they'll say, why was this so important to you? And I'll say, well, we believe in creation care. And this happened again recently, where the person on the phone was like, I've never heard that term before. Like, what is creation care? And I say, well, we believe God created everything. In God creating everything, we believe he's left us to be responsible for that which he has created, which means that we should be leaving as least a footprint here as possible, that we should be caring for the very creation that he's granted us. And usually that lends itself to some type of very unique conversation on the phone in terms of, in terms of what that looks like, in terms of how that, how that began to pans out. But God leaves Adam here in the garden, and he tells him that there's all kinds of trees. One is the tree of the life, or, or the, the tree of life is there. Likely, many commentators would suggest that that tree of life was the tree of which Adam and Eve would eat, which would allow them to live forever. They would eat of that fruit in abundance, and, and it would allow them to live forever. But then there's also this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's also this tree that God grants there. Verse 10. And so there's a river watering the garden. It flows from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The first, the name of the first was the uh, Pison. It winds through the entire land of Hivilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and um, onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris. And it runs alongside of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. In this description where the author is talking about the surveying of the land of the garden, offers a couple of things. It talks about God's blessing. Talks about God's blessing in terms of wealth. Talks about God's blessing, that's the gold, the, the onyx, the other material that's there. Talks about God's blessing also in terms of fertility. It's well watered. And so you see this fertility image continue to come and weave its way through Scripture as God calls the creatures of the sea to multiply, the creatures of the land and humanity to do the same. And so this little survey is just to say that the land is rich. Rich in wealth, rich in for, uh, fertility, it has God's blessing, verse 15. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. 
Note again the title continually through here is the Lord God. Note one of Adam's purposes. Adam is created to worship God in service. Adam is created to worship God in service. God put him there to work and care for the garden. God's created the garden, and now Adam is to work and to care for it. That's one of the purposes of Adam, to work and care for the garden as he worships God. That means that work is not evil. Some of you think it is. Some of you think of your jobs and your work placements, you think, man, I hate this. I hate work. I can't wait to retire. I can't wait to be done with work. Work is not evil. In fact, I would say of the descriptions of heaven in the New Testament that it seems fairly clear that there will be work in heaven. There will be work that we will do in heaven. Work is a God-glorifying activity. Now, that doesn't mean that you always love your job. That doesn't mean that you always think it's the greatest fit. But work is a God-given activity. And here, even though now we know it's fallen, right? In chapter 3, we'll get to that next week, where, or two weeks, sorry. Next week, we will do Easter. The, the first year Paul was here, um, Paul said to me at the end of Palm Sunday, he said, did you know today was Palm Sunday? This is now almost 14 years ago. I said, yeah. He said, no one else did. I said, why? He said, you didn't mention it once. I said, oh, I don't remember what book in the Bible you're in. Then I just go through the book I'm in. So this week at staff, because I was supposed to be in chapter 3, but I was away the one week quarantining, I said to Paul, you bring up Palm Sunday and lead communion as part of it, and I'm just going to preach Genesis 2 as if it doesn't exist. But I know it's Palm Sunday, just so we're all aware. So here we have Adam created by God in part of his worship to work and care for the garden, to look after that which God has given him to be a blessing to the created order there. And as Adam does that, I want you to note that the magnitude of our sin in chapter 3, the magnitude of our sin in chapter 3 must be understood against our nature, our purpose, and our place. Our nature, our purpose, and our place. Our nature, because we are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are made in his image. His life breath is breathed into us. So the wages of sin being death come because our very nature are in the image and likeness of God. But it's also about our purpose. Our purpose here, you'll find, is twofold in these, in these verses. The one, as we worship God, is to worship God in our servitude as we serve him. But the other is in our obedience. God has created us as creatures to obey him. That's why he is offering a command. There's one tree you can eat from, that is the tree of life, and any other vegetation in the garden you want. <clears throat> There's another tree that you cannot eat of. And if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. In the first chapter, God's word is the creative word that brings everything into existence. In the second chapter, God's word is the descriptive word of his authoritativeness calling us to obedience. And so humanity has been created by God to worship him in service and in obedience. God longs for us to serve him. God longs for us to obey him. That's our purpose. So our nature, which is why the wages of sin being death is such a high stake, our nature is we're made in his image. His life is breathed into us. He breathes life into us. Our purpose is we're to worship God through service and obedience. And our place as humanity is the top 
the pinnacle of his created order. And in choosing to sin, we violate all three of those things. And that's why the stakes are so high. That's why the wages of sin is death, is death. Now, I'll get into more of this in two weeks. Why is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil named as such? Well, it's likely because Adam and Eve would not have understood the difference between good and evil, except theoretically to know that there was something forbidden from them had they not eaten the forbidden fruit. They'd have never, had, had the forbidden fruit never been eaten, we'd have never experienced evil. We'd have never experienced suffering. We'd have never experienced any of that. It just wouldn't, wouldn't have existed for us. That's why it's the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And, and as Paul says in Romans, the wages of sitting against God is death. It's death itself. So God takes Adam, puts him in the garden to work it. Adam is in the perfect environment with every provision necessary to worship, serve, and obey. Adam is in the perfect environment with every provision necessary to worship, to serve, and to obey. And obedience, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Obedience, what's the stakes? Life is at stake. Life is at stake. Well, the Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In all of God's evaluatory comments in the first chapter, right, and into chapter 2, where he looked on creation and it's good. He looked on creation and it's good. He looked on creation and it's good. When he creates humanity, man and woman, he says it's very good. But as God pulls back the curtain and lets us understand a bit more of humanity, when he looks at Adam alone, he says that is not good. That is not good. And I will make a helper suitable for him. I'll come back to that term in a moment. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, the birds of the sky, verse 19. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals. Adam's ability to name all of the animals reflects his design and purpose and his responsibility in God's created order in representing God. So naming the animals represents God's design and purpose and his responsibility in representing God as the pinnacle of his creation. But it also allows Adam to see, under God's authority, as it also represents Adam's authority, that no suitable helper was found. That's the end of verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So as Adam named cheetahs, Right? He's like, yep, that's not a match. Orangutans, nope, don't even find them cute. Right? Like, there was just no suitable helper was found for Adam. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. This is verse 21. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs. He closed up the place with flesh. The Lord God found the woman, or formed the woman, sorry, and made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So twice here we find this term that no helper was suitable for Adam or it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. He needed a helper. Now that word sometimes has been talked about in a very negative way and it's not a negative word. Not at all. People would use that word as a subordinate word and that is not the case. That's not to say when I say that that God isn't allowing for at times in scripture distinction between man and woman in a relationship, in a married relationship. But here, this is not what God's getting at. For Adam to need a helper, it means Adam needs what? 
Adam needs help. Adam's incomplete. Adam needs help. God's going to create a helper that's going to come alongside of him and complete him. The helper isn't just Adam's assistant, because we see in the first chapter, both men and women are equally made in the image of God. Both image bearers. And so both men and women bear God's image equally. And as Adam needs help, and it's not good for him to be alone, God is going to offer a completeness to Adam by granting him a helper, by granting him a help me. This name is used of God, this term, sorry, is used of God, helper, several times in Scripture, in, in Exodus 18, verse 4, and Psalm 20, verse 2, and Psalm 46, verse 1. And so woman is man's complement emotionally, intellectually, physically, and spiritually. Woman is man's complement emotionally, intellectually, physically, and spiritually. And the reverse is true. Adam was incomplete without Eve. He could not do all that God wanted him to do without her. He couldn't do all that God wanted him to do without her. Adam alone could not reproduce and multiply. Adam alone could not complement God's created order the way that God had intended to. So the man says, well, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man. I did that in the first service too, but it's just woman. For she was taken out of man. But the idea here in, in Adam's statement is he sees something so strikingly different about woman compared to him. Wow, this is woman and she is, she is very different than, 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 than me and she is different than any of the created order. He's looking at her in her beauty. They're naked, right? The, the, the verse says that. Uh, Adam and, and his wife were both naked. That's verse 25. They felt no shame. And, and as Adam looks at her, he, he just calls out and says, she's woman. She came out of me. Verse 24 then says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This verse is quoted again later on by Paul and by Jesus as well. And so I want to just unpack these three words just for a moment. Because this is God's pattern for marriage. This is God's pattern for marriage. And marriage is the foundational institution of all of society. Marriage is the foundational institution for all of society. Everything else is built on marriage. But when you don't believe we have purpose, and you don't believe there's any intention in what's occurred, no design, then marriage is constantly attacked by our culture and society. But God has intended one man, one woman, her life, everything else built on it. Now when I say that, if you've been married any length of time, you know that that's hard. Amy and I have been married uh, 23 years this year, and marriage can be challenging. Amy and I are incredibly different, like very different. Amy is very creative. I am not remotely creative. Amy is spontaneous. I plan my spontaneity. I write spontaneity down, which I know doesn't seem very spontaneous, but Amy will say to me, you never do this, and I'll say I do. She can look through my day planner and tell you when I might buy her flowers because I'll write it down. I should buy Amy flowers. Literally, literally, I'm not exaggerating. It's so rare that I just think that I should do it. I have done that once in 23 years, I believe where just spontaneously I picked up flowers for her. But I will do it, or, or she's not as much a flower fan, other things, but I write it down ahead of time. And if she goes through my day planner, 
which occasionally she does. Just she looks through what am I doing if I'm busy and stuff. And, and she's like, what, what is this down here? You're going to do this for me. I'm like, oh, why are you reading that? Um, don't ruin your own surprise. She goes, it's not a surprise. You wrote it down a week and a half before you're doing it. I said, it is a surprise if you don't look at it. Um, I know you don't. And so we're just very different. Today, Amy was here for the first service. She's gone home, and she's now working at some things. We're doing a little bit of renovations around our house. She's working on some things, and she uses the power tools better than I do, and I'm not embarrassed by that. And so God says here, you are to leave. You're to leave your parents. What does that mean? Well, in those days, you would often stay with your parents right till you're married. Often that's different today. But still today, people are tied to their parents. Now, you're to honor your parents all of their lives. You are to respect them for all of your life and all of their life. But... You are not to be tied to them. And so when you leave your parents, it means typically you leave in a variety of ways. You leave economically. You're no longer tied to your parents in terms of the economics. They're not, they're not your support system. Socially, they're no longer your primary social base. Emotionally, before you go uh, to mom or dad for some emotional support, your primary support now is your spouse. You don't call your mom and then talk to your husband. You don't call your dad and then talk to your wife. You talk to your spouse first. You are to be ones who leave your parents, forming your own unit. And then it says you're to be united. And you just heard me talk about some of the differences between Amy and I. Being united with a partner is hard. Being united with your spouse is challenging. It just is. Because you're very different people. Right? In the summer, I said to Amy, I've been taking Fridays off since I can remember. I think I've always taken Fridays off. Maybe in my first year, I took Mondays off. I said, the store is closed Mondays. Would you like me to take Mondays off? She said, I'd love it. I said, okay. Because um, I had a real pattern established on Fridays. We'd go for breakfast. Um, then I would go home. I'd do a bunch of work around the house. And then I'd read. I would just read. And my fun reading is doctrine. So I would read doctrine. So Mondays, is, this has now become our pattern. We, go for, we drop the kids off at school. We go for breakfast. I go to Costco with her. That has never happened ever before in our marriage. Right? So we now go to Costco every week. So, so there are several weeks now where between Costco, Lime Ridge, and because we're doing some renovations, renovation places, where we have shown up home and, in time to pick up the kids, and I've got nothing done there in the house, and I've done no reading, and I'm like, Lord, my whole schedule is just gone haywire. Like I've got, and she's like, aren't we spending great time together? I'm like, yes, yes, we are, right? And we've got to figure things like that out. Being united can be really challenging, and yet we're to do it in everything. So last week, Amy had actually... I went with her for a chunk of the time, then she kept going. I came home to do some work around the house because she recognized that things weren't getting done around the house if I'm never there. Um, and so I went home to do some stuff around the house and to read. She came home because we're putting a backsplash up in our kitchen, we've never had one, with two samples. We've looked through hundreds of them, maybe more. Two samples. I got to pick one. I picked it. She then looked at me and said, just because you've given your opinion does not mean it's the one I will go with. I just want you to be aware with that. I had some stuff to do that day. I came back in the house. At the end of the day, she said, I've gone with the other one. And that's fine. That is our, our married life, right? That is, that is where we're at. But we speak into each other's lives. That's how God uses us in other lives. The other day, she said to me, as I was engaged in conversation with the kid, she said, Dwayne, with Ethan specifically, she said, that was really harsh. And I, I disagreed with her. I told her I wasn't being that harsh. I said, I said I'm not being harsh. That was on Thursday. Thursday night, I'm part of a leadership group that I'm leading here, and a gentleman, Bruce Beecham, um, um, many, many of you, uh, you, you kind of know, know Bruce. Uh, Julia Bear uh, is his daughter who passed away at our congregation a few years ago, and, and Bruce ended his talk on leadership with the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, 
joy, peace. And I thought, man, in my being harsh, I've just broken almost every fruit of the Spirit. And God really convicted me through my wife's words. Right? I had to go home and talk to my family about that and explain that, that, I, that I had sinned in that way. And then there's physical intimacy. Leave your parents, become united. And then there's physical intimacy where the two become one flesh. But we live in a day where the world says that this is utter nonsense. Where the world says that you don't even need marriage. And marriage doesn't have to be between a man and a woman. We live in a day where they actually say it's unhealthy to be monogamous. All kinds of academic articles written now on how it's unhealthy to be monogamous. How it's something that no one should be espousing to. And the sinfulness of our own natures fight against the very created order in which God has designed and intended us to live within. That's what happens. And the world wants to create things. It wants to say that God's intended design of man and woman, it, it's not just now uh, archaic. That's what they would have said 20 years ago. What do they say now? It's unethical. They're now saying that God's intended design is unethical. That monogamy is unthinkable. That it's actually unhealthy. And yet, God has called us in his brilliance to this thing called marriage as the foundational institution of life. It means that as we are fruitful and multiply, that we also raise our kids in his way. And that's challenging too, isn't it? It's challenging to raise your kids to honor God. I mean, for us and for many of us, that's meant different devotional habits over the years. We've had several different habits. We have, we have read the Bible to our kids, right? And then they get to a certain age, and we read the Bible. At first, they're kids' Bibles. Then we read, we've read the whole Bible to all of our kids. All of our kids have had us read the whole Bible to them. And then we get to the place where we read the Bible with them, and they're reading the Bible to us. It's a both and. And then we try to help them have their own devotional life. And the girls were getting older this year. They were staying up a bit later. And so we decided to switch everything up. We tried using the Bible Project as a bit of a devotional time. So the kids get an overview of the whole of the Bible. We were watching the videos together. But that wasn't gelling well. And so then we decided we would just do it at our dining room table. And I didn't know how this would go over. And Amy and I decided it would both be for the purpose of growing in our faith and for fellowship. And as we did this, there's been challenges, but God has seemingly blessed it. And so... We get together, so Monday night, we're sitting there at our table, right? We had a, a longer devotional time. The kids were really engaged. We were looking at Josiah, the king out of the Old Testament, because I'm looking at various parts of the Old Testament. And as I do that and get to those parts, I was like, this is Josiah. He was eight years old when he became king. He was a godly king. I get into some of the ideas of what's going on in the text, how he found, or they found the law of the Lord, how he had it read, how they were grieved, how they were going to follow God, and how they celebrated the Passover, unlike had never been celebrated before. And I say to the kids, Amy said I had to be specific about this, because in the first service, I said, I said to my family, what is the Passover? And no one knew. And Amy, when I sat down after, said, I know what the Passover is. Just make sure. That's the only corrective thing she gave me out of our marriage stuff in the first service. Make sure everyone knows I know what the Passover is. I sat down, said to my kids, what's the Passover? And they didn't know. And I'm like, we just did the Passover a number of weeks ago. How does no one know what the Passover is? So I go through the 10 plagues. I explain the angel passing over with the blood on the doorpost. And Ethan's like, oh, I get it, Passover, and he'll never forget that. He's in the overflow. You can ask him after the second service if you want what the Passover is. He can explain it. But then my daughter Abby's like, what if you're in a house and you don't like your older brother? Could you, after everyone went to sleep, go out and wash the blood off and when the angel take care of him? I'm like, what? She's like, I'm just wondering, Dad. What would the angel do? Would the angel pass over 
Or would the angel like, ah, firstborn gone, and you'd be like, yeah, now I'm in charge of the house. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me that this is what we're being asked. But because our devotional time is both meant to be fellowship and meant to be, to be growing in our faith in Christ, let's fellowship together at times. Let's enjoy each other's company. Let's dad just not shut it down. So as we engage in that conversation, Abby then said, what's the oddest Old Testament king's name? I'm like, why? She's like, that's what I want to name one of my kids. And then she said, no, I've changed my mind. This is all in the same conversation. I'm going to name my first child, get that, my first child, 2 Corinthians. That's what I'm going to do. Like, Abby, you got to stop right now. This is just at a whole ridiculous level. Right? But you want your family to fellowship together. You want to figure out how together we grow in our faith in Christ. And at times it ebbs and flows. And at times it's struggle. At times you're like, oh, this isn't working well. And then you find a, a season where it does work well. And, and some nights it's a little dry. And some nights it's really invigorating. And even last night, after we were done the devotional time, and everybody's cleaning up, Ethan and Abby, because Ethan and Abby and Jewel all have skateboards, and Ivy rides her bike. Um, Ethan and Abby said to to Jewel and Ivy, let's take you down to Bayfront Park and we'll go around the park together. And they did, right? And so Amy and I finished cleaning up and then because I've been struggling with sciatica, I drove down to the park um, with Amy and we met our kids. And as Amy and I were walking over, we were just like, you know what, this is really good. Like there are our four kids, we could see them coming toward us, skateboarding and riding their bike together and just enjoying each other's company. There's just something good about God allowing this to happen because he has built the family the way he has intended it to be. That's not to say it's perfect. We find out, like in, in chapter 3, there's the fall. In chapter 4, one brother's murdering another. It's messy. It's struggle. But here's what happens. I close in a couple of minutes. Adam was placed in the perfect environment with every provision necessary to worship, serve, and obey him. And I need to finish it this time. Including his wife. Adam was placed in the perfect environment with every provision necessary to worship, serve, and obey God, including his partner, his wife. Of course, we know in the next chapter that we choose to sin. And in disobeying God, death comes, and death is in a variety of ways. I'll talk about this in two weeks. It's relational, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's spiritual, and it's physical. But God made it clear when he told Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, here's what's at stake, your life is. Here's what's at stake. Your life is at stake. And Adam and Eve chose to rebel. But here's the good news. And Kevin, you guys can come up. The good news is that though God know we could fight for our marriages when they're struggling, and we should, that we could never fight to get our relationship back with him. We couldn't do it. That was impossible. So the good news is God knew that for us to have a relationship with him again, he'd have to fight for it. And so we did. God fought for our relationship with him. God in the perfect time sent his son, that is our savior, Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam. And where we couldn't obey or chose not to obey the command of God, and now subsequently can't obey the commands of God, and the wages of sin is death, Jesus perfectly obeyed all of God's command. And in perfectly obeying God's command, he was the fulfillment of the law, both in that he never sinned and in that he was the Messiah. He was of whom the word spoke about the Messiah, the fulfillment of the law, and he was the one of whom was able to keep the law. And so because of that, on his death on the cross, when he became our sin, upon his resurrection on Easter Sunday, he's able to offer us his righteousness and restore to us that which God had always intended. And by his spirit who is now in us, 
who are believers, God grants us the capacity to live and to honor him because he's granted us, in granting us the Spirit, every provision necessary to worship and serve and obey him. That is the good news of the gospel. Because that is how great our God is. Would you pray with me? We are thankful, O oh God, for your genius in creating us. You have made us in your image and likeness, and you have breathed life into us. You've granted us companionship and fellowship, and we're thankful for that. And even in our fallenness, we're thankful, O oh God, that you chose to send your Son to grant us life. In a moment, as we celebrate communion and we're reminded of the fact that your body was broken and your blood was shed for us, we're thankful that that's how much you loved us and long to allow us to bear your image, your likeness, in a God-honoring, Christ-honoring way as we're filled by your Spirit. Let it be so, we pray in Christ's name.